October the 26th, uh, lecture discussion number 174 on the book of Romans. And as you know, if you've been following along, we have come to the place in our never-ending Roman series where we're going to be attempting to solve the meanings of the, of the words talents and abilities. as they uh, pertain to the parable at Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So yes, this is a Romans discussion on Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Uh, and defining these two words or these two symbols that are clearly very complex, by the way, it's, and it's almost impossible to do them justice. Whenever you think you have solved what talents means or you have solved what abilities mean in that parable, stop yourself, hit yourself in the forehead and start over because you have not. There's just too much there. It's going to take a long time. And we won't make it, as we never do. I'll just get you close. Uh, I'll try to do justice to the complexity. I bet that's the best I can probably accomplish. And whatever conclusions um, that you reach, that we reach, that any of us reach, that are reached, whatever those conclusions are, they must bear consistency with the order that is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So your conclusions and the order must match up. They must glove or feather together or dovetail, whatever your uh, allegory. The parable of the talents is, is gold. I have gold. It's heavy. So, And I have an order to the gold being handed out, given to three individuals, as it says, who are these three individuals? Some people have devoted amazing amounts of work to trying to identify the three. In other words, they are specific. I'm going to go that direction a little bit today. But their talents, these talents are, are heavy, massive amounts of gold, heavy gold given to three on the basis of their ability. And two are good and faithful and they enter into the joy of the Lord. The third is wicked. Amazingly wicked. So there's your first clue as to who he is. And in addition to just burying and hiding that which Christ has given him, he then launches into a series of accusations at, uh, at God. The evil, wicked one does. The third one. He declares that God is evil. That God is a liar. That God is the author of sin. And therefore unfit to judge sin. Disqualified from holding anyone else accountable for any act or thought on the basis that God himself is the causing agent of all of those evil acts and evil thoughts. And ultimately, as you know, as we've discussed so many times, the free will of man is then reduced to an illusion. There is no free will, and therefore there is no solution to sin. The solution to sin is not possible. And obviously, uh, the, the case is quickly made that this is Satan and God in the parable of Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Satan is that third wicked person. And so now the fivefold lie of Satan uh, comes up again. All the elements of it. I don't call it. I call it the lie, but it has five aspects to the lie, and we'll get into that next week. But it's a constant in our world, and it is a constant in the angelic realm as well. So the physical realm and the angelic realm are both now overwhelmed by the fivefold lie of Satan. It's always on the surface. Satan's system is nothing if not pervasive. And here in Scripture at Matthew 25 is another place where Christ answers this lie. Uh, which is important. Remember, I ask you all the time, he says to somebody, take it, take what is his away, take what is his away from him and give it to the one that has five. And I ask all the time, who's the they? Who's watching this? Well, Christ answers this third uh, person. Uh, he answers the lie, which is, makes Matthew 25, 14 through 30 such an exciting passage. It brings it to the same uh, level, if you will, of, for lack of a better way of explaining it, equal to Matthew 4. And by the way, Joshua 7, he answers at both places it well as well. He says, get up to Joshua. Joshua gives him almost the same 
it's a diatribe from Joshua. Remember that lecture? He, he says, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness just to kill us? That's a declaration that God is what? Evil, a liar. That's absolutely correct. Manipulative, capricious. And so God says, Christ says there, get up to Joshua. Why do you lie thus on your face? And in Matthew 4, he says, away with you, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see this again at Gethsemane in Genesis 15. All of these things uh, interconnect. So God says, Christ says to the third uh, servant at Matthew 25, If you knew I was the author of evil, and therefore evil myself. And this is Christ saying this to Satan. This is the chronister paraphrase. I hope you understand that. If you knew I was the author of evil, and therefore evil myself, why, Satan, did you bury my beautiful garment? Or if you want to put Achan in there, why, Achan, did you bury my beautiful garment? Or to the third slave, why uh, did you bury my talent of gold. Okay, again, I recognize that Christ didn't say that. Clearly, that's my editorializing, but I'm trying to bring it together for you as best I can. And and again, I've got to defend that position. I'm going to, if I can't, if I'm unable to defend that position, my opinion, then it my opinions deservedly should be withdrawn and modified before I resubmit it, obviously. So as usually the case, uh, that's what I'm going to do today. And <clears throat> also as usually the case, I happened to receive a letter a while back, about a month ago or so, asking me to investigate the rise of modernism. The rise of modernism uh, in the... Uh, Christian church, because today's contemporary Christian church is awash in modernism, whether they know it or not. Most of them don't know it. Most of them have no idea that uh, where they're at. And the writer of the letter that I received thought it would be especially useful to trace modernism back to its origins, since we're in the middle of modernism when we're discussing Matthew 25. Also, uh, modernistic philosophy. We're also going to run into it at uh, Romans 9, Joshua 7. And someone insists that I refer to modernism as a theology, and, and you notice I didn't do that. It's not a theology. It is a counterfeit. It's not even a very good counterfeit. It's apostasy, I guess would be better. Anyway, the letter is uh, from Mark from Texas. And you may remember Mark as the one who had the series of exchanges with Joseph uh, Farrar. And Joseph Farrar had succumbed, succumbed to the modernistic or the modernism abyss. And Mark from Texas worried about him and pointed out the implications of Mr. Farrar's interpretations of passages and that uh, Mr. Farrar had allowed considerations that were diametrically opposed to the godhood of Christ. And he also happened to uh, notice that as he did research, that that same could be said for Dr. Fruchtenbaum, who you know has had a tremendous influence on me. And I tell people all the time, listen, you've got to be really careful uh, with commentators. That includes me. Um, verify. And unfortunately, no one seems to get How do I say this? Some are very, very good in their areas. You get them outside of their areas and they go bambi-legged on you. So you have to know that. So let me read uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's quote that affected Mark from Texas. And and this is a quote. He sent it to me. And I'm going to read quite a bit of it here so that you get the gist. The New Testament gives us an account of a 12-year-old Jesus visiting the temple in Jerusalem for the first time, Luke 2, 41 through 50. By the age of 12, Jesus was fully conversant with the Hebrew Scriptures and able to debate deep spiritual matters with the leading theologians of that day. Okay, remember, who is Jesus? He's God. He's always God. 
can't be anything but God. Mr. Brutumam goes on. Furthermore, when Jesus is later rebuked by his mother for remaining in the temple, he replies, did you not know I would be in my father's house? This one statement shows that by the age of 12, Jesus knew that Joseph was not his father. The implication is, does it favor omniscience and godhood or does it, does it not? And therefore understood that he was the Messiah of Israel. Let me repeat that. This one statement shows that by the age of 12, Jesus knew that Joseph was not his father, knew that God was his father, and therefore understood that he was the Messiah of Israel. Uh, as a commentary, I would say Jesus always knew that. He can't help but know it. He's omniscient God. Since it is clear, reading on from Mr. Bruchtenbaum, since it was clear that in his humanity, Jesus was not omniscient. How did he acquire his knowledge and learning then? The New Testament does not explain. No, that should be your first clue that maybe you're off the rails. There are several aspects of Jesus' life which are revealed only in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, gives us a picture of the learning process which Jesus went through. Verse 4, 50 verse 4 of Isaiah, verse 4 describes the learning or disciplining of the servant. During his boyhood in Nazareth, every morning Jesus was awakened by his father in the early hours of the morning to receive instruction. And this way Jesus learned who he was, what his mission was, and how to act and react accordingly. That's Mr. Fruchtenbaum's interpretation of Isaiah 50. That's his quote. This is Mark, Mark from Texas's word. So it's pretty clear to me that Dr. Fruchtenbaum puts a lot of limits on Christ's earthly incarnation and that what I saw Joseph Farrar doing when referring to Christ's condens- condescension they both seem to be discounting the I amness of Jesus Christ. Hence, I compared the two of them in the same sentence uh, as the basis of my previous email. Huh. Obviously, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, a brilliant theologian, uh, perhaps the last living brilliant theologian, in my view, and Joseph Farrar are unable to reconcile scriptures certain passages, i.e. Isaiah 50, probably Psalm 22.1, probably Hebrews 5, etc. They can't reconcile those with the deity of Christ. And they attempt to resolve their inability to reconcile those with the casting out or the removing the fundamental truth of Scripture, which is Christ's Godhood. Their first response is, I can't understand what Isaiah 50 is saying. I'll give you a clue. I won't give it to the Internet audience. There's a word in there that helps you understand Isaiah 50. That's the word. Teenagers use it every other time. If you understand that that's in there, you understand what it's, what it's trying to say. Next week I'll go over it again. You, you get a head start. Just in the event that you go home and you can't figure out Isaiah 50. So that's my little gift, I guess. The one thing you don't do is cast out, again, the fundamental truth of the Bible, which is Christ is, Jesus, or Christ is God. Instead of removing that, why don't you remove your understanding of Isaiah 50 or Hebrews 5 or Psalm 22, 1, or whatever problem you have that, uh, that causes you to question the Godhood of Christ. Get rid of that. Remove your interpretation. Don't remove the Godhood in any way. To say, to put in a sentence... Let me read it again. it's, It's stunning, and I read it when he first... Since it is clear that Jesus was not omniscient, if you ever write that, you're in trouble. Deep trouble. You should never write that. Much less say it. Removing the deity of Christ is exactly the principle of the modernistic movement. Modernism. And it's devastating. It's a devastating place for anyone to be. But it's quite normal. Okay, now I'm going to read some more of Mark from Texas. He sent this to Lori. Um, I recently had an exchange with Supper Dave. 
regarding the subject of Christ being fully God at all times. Supper Dave and I are on the same page with Pastor Steve that it is essential that this must be in order that we can be saved. Pastor sums it up best with the line, Christ is always God, he is never not God. Supper Dave was going to pass our email exchange to Pastor Steve and may have already done so. Yes, the answer is yes, he already has done so. I got to thinking some more on the topic and realized what I had said to David could be, uh, Supper Dave, sorry, I don't want to reduce his title, could be augmented with what I had put in an email to Pastor Steve about 17 months ago when he did the lecture regarding Joseph Farrar and my exchange on that same topic. In that email, I followed up on Pastor Steve's surprise in Romans series 105 that Dr. Fruchtenbaum had taken a similar position to Joseph Farrar. Uh, Yeah, listen, I tell people all the time um, that I find the stripping of the deity of Christ in almost every commentator that I read. It's sad. And so when you when you take find these wonderful men who are godly men who care deeply, just be ready that they're going to fail you. And, and just do what you can to get through it. I sent a quote from Dr. Fruchtenbaum's book that made Dr. Fruchtenbaum's position on this topic pretty pretty clear. See attached copy of that email. But I never heard Pastor Steve comment to that quote on Dr. Fruchtenbaum, from Dr. Fruchtenbaum. I've attached my correspondence with Supper Dave and the email concerning Farrar and Fruchtenbaum above. The two emails separated by 17 months are really the same topic repeated, just to different recipients. I've highlighted what I consider the pertinent points in each correspondence in yellow. You and Pastor Steve will be able to see that they are really just a continuation of the same subject. I asked Supper Dave to ask Pastor Steve to do a lecture on the history and source of some people's absolute steadfast belief that Christ condescended himself despite Hebrews 13.8 telling us that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Okay? And now, there's another one that I need to get to you. I know this is a lot. But what it's doing is helping you solve the reason it is here. It's helping you define talents and abilities in Matthew Matthew 25. That will be clear, I hope, when I read this. September 27, 2014. So I got this about a month or so ago. And I knew where I was going and I knew that it was directly involved. I'd love to hear Pastor Chronister do an intermission Sermon, he sent this to Dave, I suppose. Is that right, Dave? Is this, uh, yes. I'd love to hear Pastor Chronister do an intermission sermon on what I interpret as the position of particularly Catholics who seem to take the position that Christ was both human and divine in both his physical body and spirit, and his spirit. That position seems to be what leads people to this belief that he suppressed his God spirit in favor of his perceived holy a human part of his spirit. They seem to think that he can't be a suitable sacrifice unless he manages to be only human, the only human, the only human, sorry, that word, the the article was missing, the only human ever to live with the same temptations and weaknesses that we all have, and during that time be the only purely total human with all those same human frailties to ever get through a whole life on earth without sin. Like it doesn't count unless he manages to be sinless while casting off the advantages of also being God. It is pernicious, this belief that he has to be, he has to temporarily set aside his divinity because for some reason, well, he just has to do so. The preceding paragraph is the closest I can get to Chronister speak. Happy face to be inserted here. The preceding bold type is my anemic attempt at the usual cynical humor that pervades most of the letters to Pastor Chronister from us non-cliffside internet listeners. Happy face inserted again. I think this is what leads to the Mel Gibson version of Christ, with all that version's frailties, fears, and weaknesses. In effect, the Christ who does the Catholic stations of the cross and luckily manages to survive and make it to the crucifixion on time to save all of us from eternal perdition. As for me, I came to the conclusion a long time ago that only God himself, with all his omnipotent advantages in play, can be the perfect sacrifices, 
sacrifice for our sins. Unlike the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny Christ's divinity and think he is a created being, I cannot see God's justice allowing for anyone but God himself to be the sacrifice for our sins. Only God himself can snuff his own omnipotent life, and only that life is worthy to be the sacrifice. As I told Mr. Farrar, don't you think that a Christ who could heal any sickness or any wound and raise the dead would have been capable to heal his own stripes, guts, bruises, and piercing faster than they could ever be administered by the mere Roman mortal soldiers? Long before I ever heard a sermon from Pastor Chronister, I acknowledged to myself that we humans are not only are not the only players on the creation stage. The, the angels fallen and unfallen are taking all of this in as it transpires. Satan, the great accuser in front of a gallery of angels. And if Christ were a created being, then I can just see Satan accusing God of getting off easy by creating an extraordinary being, but nonetheless still just a created one to be the scapegoat for a fallen and perfect creation that Satan then blames God for allowing to happen. In other words, God would allow himself to do nothing other than create this extraordinary human being capable of getting through a human life with no sin in order to let a believing remnant of humanity off the hook while not really sacrificing anything of himself. What would Satan say to that? Okay? I know that was a lot. I hope uh, you saw the benefit of it and I certainly hope you understand how it applies to Matthew 25. And I, and again, I, I thank you as many of you already have, in which case you're ready to go right to the buffet table. And I don't blame you, but because he did, Mark from Texas, did in fact answer exactly what should be answered with regard to Matthew 25. But on the chance that someone uh, somewhere in the vast Internet audience um, has not solved it and is breathlessly awaiting. You can barely say that. And I just need one. Uh, I'm going to stay on task and finish. Maybe. Thank you for holding your applause. Okay, note that Mark from Texas quickly went to Satan. I mean, he's... He's going immediately to Satan when he takes on the condescension of Christ or the modernistic view of Christ. He goes immediately to Satan. What would Satan say if that were the case? What specific accusation would Satan make if Christ were, and he rightfully does it, Mark does, what if Christ were just merely a created being and not God? How would Satan respond to that? In other words, let's grant the premise or the hypothesis, if you will. Seed it. That God created a far superior human being. So Christ, for the sake of the argument, we're going to say that God created this very superior human being. And let us suppose that Christ is not God at all. He's simply a created person that God then, uh, as Dr. Fruchtenbaum interprets, probably Hebrews 5, parts of the New Testament, and certainly Isaiah 50, that Christ is simply a, a created person that God then teaches and guides and empowers. And that's all he is. Again, that's Dr. Fruchtenbaum's stated interpretation of Isaiah 50. What then would be Satan's accusation? What would he say? I want you to consider Satan's accusation at Matthew 25, 14 through 30, or Matthew 4. Pick one of them. What did he say there? Is it not logical that the same line of thought would just continue? I submit that it would be. Couldn't we immediately expect that Satan would persist in accusing God of what? Being evil. If God created a super being, if you will, a superior moral being that he then guides, empowers, teaches, and holds on to really protects, Satan would say that was evil. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? Since that's what Satan says all the time. Of course he would. And all that remains now is to analyze that logic. What I mean by that, can the case be made definitively that if Jesus were not God himself, then the inevitable conclusion would be that God is evil? I, I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, don't raise your hand. Just continue looking completely bored wanting to get... There's lots of cake today. 
we abound in dessert. It's one of those special dessert buffets where no one communicates and so they all make dessert. What did you make, sir? Uh, yes, what, what, yes, very well said. Didn't we do this already? Don't we have Adam? But again, the, the debate would be, or the, the uh, retort would be, sorry, that he left Adam alone. He's not leaving Christ alone. Let me try it again. Another example, obviously, uh, let me try another example. Obviously, if one was to suppose that God is not am- omniscient, then God cannot judge, right? You can see the logic. If God is, I'm using a different track now, packed. If God is not omniscient, then God can't judge. Does that make sense to you? You need to be omniscient in order to judge. Okay, because he lacks the ability to know all things. Therefore, to condemn any of mankind to eternal damnation is unfair. It's unjust. God would be unjust, which is not good. God wouldn't know enough. Somebody would slip through the cracks. And we wouldn't have perfect judgment. We'd have imperfect judgment. We'd have people in hell that didn't belong there. That, by the way, is the premise of what? That is the rich Pharisee and Lazarus, right? So you know, the, you, you can see the wickedness attack that. If God is not good in any way, then he's not omnibenevolent, and therefore he is evil. I left out a few steps, but you get the point. I want you to apply that kind of logical progression to this. God makes a superior being, and then he holds on to him this time, doesn't let him out of his sight, so there's no possibility that he will sin. Even though he's tempted to sin and he's weak as he could be, he barely stand. I gotta prop him up, but I can get him through it. Satan would say that's evil. And so we're gonna apply, let me apply it as best I can. It's very common, what I just reiterated, that Jesus Christ was only a man, not God in any meaningful sense. He's separate from God except for special instruction, constant supervision, supervision, and supernatural intervention. And, and Satan responds, that's evil. That leaps off the page. He would also say, this is unfair, right? And if it's unfair, it's unjust. Why did you do it for this one person? Why didn't you do it for all people? Are you unwilling or are you unable to do it? See the problem with that? You have no omnipotence. Or you are evil. Which one is it, God? Why did you not do this for all mankind? Satan would say this as well. This is a de facto elimination of what? Free will. If Christ wants to sin, you're going to stop him. Once I've allowed Christ to not be God, that's modernism. Once I've taken the deity away from Christ, modernism... Then I put Christ in this position. This is all that I can do. This is all the only, the only position left. Is that God then babied him all the way through the process. Is that common taught doctrine today? No, I hate to call it doctrine. Is that common taught? Yes. It's everywhere. Modernism is everywhere. Certainly in the movies. Certainly in Catholic theology, as uh, Mark from Texas pointed out. Satan would say, you have eliminated free will. How can anyone then be held accountable if free will is manipulated? If you're manipulating it, then all free will is now invalidated, right? If it is necessary to intervene to prevent sin, wouldn't Satan go on to say, then why don't I manipulate it at all times? In other words, can it be said that Christ was sinless if God prevented him from sinning? Isn't this the same as uh, uh, the Spanish Inquisition? I torture the guy until he, uh, he renounces his religion, accepts Christ, and then I behead him. I keep him from going back. Can it be said that Christ was sinless if God prevented him from sinning? How can judgment be issued then? If you do judge people after you have made this process, let me go all the way back. 
I create a special, superior, moral, righteous being. I coddle him. I manipulate him. I protect him from everything. I keep him from sinning. I get him to the cross where he sacrifices himself. Barely. He barely made it. He's ready to quit all the way there. I got him up there. Got him through it. Is he sinless? If he's not sinless, then he's not a sacrifice. And if you decide that, okay, well, go ahead, take him as a sacrifice, who can issue judgment based on that? Only an evil person would do that, and therefore God is evil. See how we do it? And as an aside, additionally, is this scenario that I just gave you, is, is that a solution to sin in any possible way, shape, or form? No, it is not. In fact, that kind of thinking actually buttresses the lie of Satan. It reinforces the lie of Satan. Why would anyone espouse such a poorly conceived position? It stuns me. What is the origin? That's what Mark wanted me to do. What is the origin of this condescension of Christ? Now, to be fair, there is you have to define what condescension means as opposed to humiliation. And I'll do that next week. But liberalism defines condescension this exact way. Who wants to believe this? What is this? I have a word for it. What is that word? That's right. I get in trouble when I say it. Rhymes with rap. (laughs) I would have said rhymes with crap, but I'd get in trouble for that. Why would anyone want this? I never, it stuns me all the time. It's astonishing. It destroys salvation. It is insulting to Christ. It's heresy. It's blasphemy. But it's what? It's popular. It's winning. They're killing us. It is feeling-based emotionalism, and crowds do love them some Christ is pathetic, weak, weeping for himself, afraid, confused sermons. They love that stuff, and they eat it up, and they go by the hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, to every church that does it. Never mind that all of that is impossible. He can't be weak. It's impossible. He can't be pathetic. He never would weep for himself. He can't be afraid. He can't be confused. All of that is impossible. He's God. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's impossible for for Christ to be anything but fully God. Let me put it that put that on the. Uh, I mean, I don't have time to put it on the board. Let me say it again. It is impossible for Christ to be anything but fully God. So that's your choice. Stick with that, or or I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to throw uh, all the doctrines of Christ uh, out the door. People love in the, in the church today. They love. This nonsense that Christ is crying for himself, for himself. It makes them cry. Here's a, something that gets me in trouble every time I say it. Feeling sorry for Christ is blasphemy. But it's worse than that. Feeling sorry for Christ is stupid blasphemy. Indefensible. I don't care how much you like it. Stop it. I don't care how much the movies make you fall down and wail. It's blasphemy. Quit feeling sorry for God. It's insulting. I'm sorry if that offends you. N-R-F-S. Okay, I've reduced it to N-R-F-S. Go look at another lecture, find out what that means. People are stealing it now from me. I was first, but they're stealing it. I can't, anything that I did, uh, and I was really happy with, somebody has stolen and I have lost it. So what does that make me do? That's right, steal their stuff back. Okay, where then did this, what's the origin? Where did this come from? Well, my first exposure to modernism, I was a young man in the 1970s. Yes, I'm that old. There was a book called The Myth of God Incarnate that was making the rounds at the university that I was at. I'd sit in the uh, what a place called the Off Center off of the campus of uh, University of Hawaii in Manoa where I would go and play table tennis and 
chess with the real students of the university. It's very hard to be a student at the University of Hawaii. It is for an Alaskan. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> you don't go to school in the summer, and it's always summer. So hence, I never went to school, or I barely did. <laughs> I can't call what I did there anything that was educational, except I would go to this off center all the time. I spent most of my days there. And, um, and this book, The Myth of God Incarnate, began to make the rounds. And, and it essentially argued that Christ was not divine. Is that a shock? No. And that, that salvation Christianity, either one, did not require that Christ be God himself. In fact, it said that God becoming man was obsolete thinking. It said that the church should abandon all teaching. It should uh, The church should expunge all passages that relate to the doctrine of the Incarnation. That scientific advances, does this sound familiar? 1975, I think I would say, well, yeah, it'd be 75. Hopefully this sounds familiar to you. Scientific advances, uh, scientific consensus had prevailed against the incarnation. In other words, they're saying that God and uh, man are logically incompatible. They're two distinct in- entity, the, the entities. The famous thing is God becoming man is the same as a circle becoming a square. They can't do it by definition. They're... Not able. That was their position. And so, yeah, I can see how you can make the case that these are defined things. A circle and a square have definition. Uh, Give me the definition of God really quickly. Okay, five words or less. One of the things you would do is infinity and therefore you're out of definition. Your definition has to be infinite. Why is it that God is incompatible? Who decided that God is incompatible with adding humanity? And they will, they said this, we know that they are incompatible. No, you don't know that at all. There's where your whole system breaks down. Nonetheless, they said scientific consensus, consensus had prevailed against the incarnation. The deity of Christ, therefore, was uh, rendered to be an ancient superstition. It's irrelevant. And the question only remained, would the churches accept this tripe? And the answer was, absolutely. Oh, yeah, baby. They ran. They seized it. And it had significant impact in those churches that felt the need to conform to the latest intellectual pursuits. But that, I don't think, was the point of origin. That's just when I came across it. But I have noticed that it has exploded in the church. There's no question. From the 70s, it has exploded. Two things that impacted me. I noticed this this event, uh, and I also noticed the, the Jesus people event. You have to be older. They call them Jesus freaks. They came out of the, uh, they came out of California mainly. And they were not interested in doctrinal things. They were interested in uh, how they felt. We used to have a joke at the, I went to a bunch of churches in the 70s obviously and and, uh, most of them once they found out what I was like asked me to leave. That is not untrue. Uh, but there were four-hour services, and there was not never a sermon. It was just singing, 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 hour after hour after hour until everybody was exhausted. We had the, it was seven three, I think. It was the same three words said seven times or something. Can't remember what what the the math was, but it's just over and over and over and over again until you were emotionally and physically exhausted. And then what did they do? Took your money. That's right, baby. That's how it works. Simple. Again, that wasn't the point of origin. It's just simply another example of churches grasping at any technique to maintain their finances. And I learned as a young man that doctrine will be subordinated to whatever maintains an increase in cash flow, which is evidence Evident in the megachurch today, that megachurch entertainment model, and they, that, the megachurch entertainment model is working and it is laser focused on emotional responses. That's all they're interested in. Okay, what, what it really is, and I have to, I always misspell this word, I leave out the C, Gnosticism. Modernism, Gnosticism, very much similar. 
Gnosticism was a pagan belief system that uh, infiltrated the church in the first century. As soon as almost Christ was gone, along came the Gnostics. Uh, the core belief in Gnosticism is that spiritual things are good and physical things are evil. So therefore, God could never have been Christ because Christ had a physical component. He added humanity to himself. So they, they denied that God and Christ could be the same. God, therefore, had to create Christ. It actually didn't create Christ. He had somebody else create Christ because he couldn't create anything physical. Does that make sense? It shouldn't. It's garbage. But it's now what we call modernism. I actually explained it pretty well. Most of the Gnostics would be very happy with what I said. The core belief was to deny that spiritual God added physical humanity because they have a physical and spiritual are diametrically, again, opposed. They're opposites. They're absolute opposites. And it is completely, absolutely unacceptable to the Gnostics that Christ is God. Again, that physical, spiritual problem that they have. And also completely, absolutely intolerable that Christ was bodily resurrected. Same reason. Body, physical things, evil. Spiritual things, good. Okay, quickly. Who says God is not, Christ was not bodily resurrected today? What group does that? Jehovah's Witnesses. They're Gnostics. The influence of Gnosticism, modernism, has overwhelmed the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are likewise adamant that Christ is not God, and likewise adamant that he did not resurrect him. Self. It's also, by the way, advanced into the charismatic movement. I'll get mail on that, but it has. The modernism, Gnosticism, Christ is not resurrected, Christ is uh, not God, is overwhelming the charismatic movement because what do they worship? You go into the bookstore of all any charismatic church, you see a book on Christ and his deity and doctrines of Christ? No, what do you see? Books on the Holy Spirit because they focus on the spiritual. All traced back to modernistic thinking, which is traced back to the early Gnostic pagans of the first century. Jehovah's Witnesses have altered their Bible to reflect their paganism. They have what they call the NWT, the New World Translation. Um, and And they made adjustments to it. And most notably, uh, they have adjusted Luke 23:42. There are a whole bunch of them, and maybe next week or the weeks to come, I'll get into a little bit of that so that you see it. But uh, you should be aware that other modern translations have adopted the New World uh, Translation uh, adjustments. Uh, they've assimilated them. Most notably, the NIV and the uh, New American Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard Version. Uh, again, Luke 23:42. they omit Lord. And when you do that there, you change the meaning. Acts 3.13, son is replaced, son capitalized is replaced by servant, not capitalized. Luke 2.43, Joseph and his mother is exchanged for parents. NIV, New American Standard, both of them do it. The implications are always the same. The Godhood of Christ is very subtly removed that way. You see, just to give you the last example, Joseph is not Christ's parent. So when you take Joseph and his mother out of the sentence and you replace it with parents, then you've implied that Joseph is the parent, haven't you? And that is what the NIV does. That's what the New American Standard does. That is what the Jehovah's Witness deliberately adjusted Bible does. When you are talking about the integrity of the deity of Christ, only the King James does the job. Everyone should know that. Okay? So recognize Gnostic paganism is the modernism movement, and both attack the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, if Christ is not God, then what? What's the point of him being resurrected if he's not God? Why should we bother? Who did he die for if he's not God? If I had to drag him kicking and screaming up there and he barely made it and I had to manipulate him and watch every move he made or he's going to run for it, it's exactly what they teach. Then who did he die for? How many, let's do the math, how many can he substitute for if he's not God? 
How many? Come on, give me one. I'll give you one if you had no sin. So how does that help you and me? Who's the one? The joke is, of course, when you're talking to a modernist, the joke is, is that you have guaranteed the salvation of Barabbas. Okay? He was the one that didn't get executed, right? So that's, that's what we call seminary humor. I'm sorry. It wasn't that funny, was it? But it's all I got. Who did he die to, for? How many can he substitute for? One for one. It, it is not then surprising that the modernism would find that the crucifixion would be worthless. They would find that the resurrection of Christ would be also meaningless. Why bother to die at all? What becomes the purpose of the death of Christ if he is not God? is valueless if he is not God. Ultimately, that's where we go. Certainly, it removes God from the process, does it not? Which is also common. It is common to hear that God has removed himself from the process. Recognize that argument when you see it. They say this to you. God floats around having no regard for his creation, allowing it to disintegrate. He is detached, God is. He's disengaged, God is. He's uninvolved and he is disinterested. And he has left us to our own devices. If God is disinterested in his creation and it is disintegrating into chaos and evil, what is God? If he's not involved at all, what is he? Uh, Let me help you. I have a child here and I have somebody harming the child. And you have the capacity to stop it and you do nothing. What are you? Yeah, you see, you're certainly not good, are you? Disinterested. Uninvolved is ultimately evil. Satan's accusation, is it not? Anyone that says God is disengaged is saying that God is evil. The incarnation and the resurrection of Christ are are just absolutely perfectly opposed to the nonsense that God is disinterested and uninvolved, disengaged, detached. The incarnation demonstrates a God of what? Why would he... Take on humanity. What is his reason to do it? Yes, love. Extend mercy. Why would a disinvolved, disinterested, floating around God do that? He wouldn't. Only a God of love and mercy adds humanity. It's a reason he does it. It's a salvation element. It's a saving God. It's also what? He's a person. He comes. He calls. He resurrects the dead. Why would you resurrect the dead? Because you're good. You resurrect the dead because you're good. Well, they said, no, he's not good because he's going to turn around and condemn people to perdition. The phone is never for me. Always want the phone to be for me. It's never for me. Sounds like my wife's phone. I have to stop because it's distracting me. Whose phone is it? Oh, it's the church phone. They're probably wanting to talk to me. I guarantee you they're not wanting to talk to me. Resurrection is good. Some will say, no, it's not. He's going to resurrect a condemned to perdition. That's good. Because why? That's judgment. And his judgment is good. He is not going to allow sin to go without ending. God is involved. That's why he adds humanity. That's why he communicates. That's why he describes himself. That's why he comes so that he manifests who he is. He's letting us know. And people focus so much on healing nowadays. I, listen, I, I don't want you to be sick. I don't want to be sick. But healing is just prolonging the death process. That's all it is. The death by decay process. Mortogenic. It's temporal. Resurrection is the solution. Resurrection is complete, total, forever, eternal healing. Anyway, as much as I would like to blame Gnosticism for modernism, they don't 
warrant all the responsibility the Gnostics don't. Diminishing Christ has been profitable for well over a thousand years. Anything or anyone that is elevated ultimately places the godhood of Christ into contention. What I mean by that, um, uh, if you say that there's a learning process necessary for Christ and you've diminished his uh, godhood, if not totally removed it, if you say that Mary, his mother, taught him things, taught him about the Bible, taught him about himself. Somehow Mary taught him that he was God, the Messiah. Well, you've destroyed uh, the doctrine of his incarnation. Or if you want to say that his mother is co-redemptrix, in which case she is co-equal with Christ, she's clearly a created being. So you've said Christ is a created being. Back you go now to where God is evil. If Christ is a created being, God is evil because there is no salvation, right? Then the truth of Christ's omniscience is destroyed. Truth of his resurrection is destroyed. Salvation is destroyed. Why would Mary Olatry rise and be replaced then? Why did it come into being? It's everywhere. How many millions of statues of uh, Michelangelo's huge Mary holding a tiny Christ on her lap are there for sale? We have made Mary the massive size. Christ is pathetic. I don't know what you could call him. Why would you do it? Well, many reasons. A failure to solve uh, Romans 5.12, the continuity of germplasm, as you've heard, and I think that's absolutely one of the reasons. They couldn't solve Romans 5.12. But it's a desire, really, to present a female God. That desire was overwhelming because it provided something, actually provided two somethings. It's a large mass of humanity demanded a female God, and the accompanied financial and political resources that that mass of humanity brought to the church uh, was was so tempting. And the consequences to the critical truth of the deity of Christ weren't even considered. They didn't care. They just took a Babylonian female deity. It was too great a temptation. It prevailed, irrespective of all the Scripture opposing it, and they took it. Let me say this as we shut it down here. All of Scripture shouts that Jesus Christ is Creator God in the flesh. It does so because salvation is in possible otherwise. And God seeks to save the lost. No other solution exists because no other solution can exist, which takes us back now to Matthew 25, 14 through 30, where we started, where we have been asking, what does this word talent represent? What is the meaning of the talent? What does this heavy gold possession of God represent? He gives it to everyone and holds everyone account. And some gladly receive it and invest it. Others reject it, hide it, accuse God of being evil, and declare the whole system to be corrupt. Okay? You've now solved it, haven't you? Hope you have. Next week, we'll continue solving.